Hey, it's Jay. And as a reminder, I'm going to keep three clips solely focused on the content that it was always meant for, understanding what it takes to make great podcasts a few little pieces at a time. Although during this weird time of COVID-19, this public health crisis that we're all going through, I do have other projects that are talking more overtly about what's going on and even implicitly about the themes that are emerging. But for this show, I've decided that the best way I can help other people is to continue to serve podcasters, to serve you, and try to help you create the best show possible. Because I do think that when you build trust and love through a show, when you have this intimacy that scales so nicely, which is the power of voice on a podcast, that has real impact. I mean, it's not like we're all medical professionals. I get it. But when you can actually teach somebody something or inspire them or even just distract them and help them escape into something they love, even just for a moment, that has power. So again, three clips. We're just going to keep talking about podcasting. The mission of this show and our parent organization, Marketing Showrunners, it stays the same. We want to help makers and marketers find and share their voices and make a difference through the shows they create. Okay, so part of that process is helping you understand and also better measure the value of your shows. Things like downloads and even drop-off rates, it doesn't always tell the story, or at least the full story, of why your podcast is so valuable for your business and so beloved by your audience. So today, we're going to look at this problem from a few different angles with one of the smartest marketing thinkers and philosophers, really, Phil Nottingham from Wistia. And because this is a meta show, because I am podcasting for podcasters, I make things for makers, I market my work to marketers, it's always like I can give you the thing I'm making and then also talk about the behind the scenes, like how I made it. And part of the meta part, part of the how I made it, is to make sure that I was addressing things that I knew Phil would slightly disagree or outright disagree with me on. There's plenty of moments where he agrees with what I say, but I think a lot of shows with guests or a lot of shows with co-hosts they're pretty flat because there's not enough tension. We talk a lot about on the show about how stories have tension. Some kind of status quo is disrupted by conflict, by an uncertainty, by an open-ended question, by tension. And even if you don't have a narrative style show, you can still introduce tension very easily. Disagree. You don't have to fight and bicker. You don't have to be poisonous about it, but disagreements. Oh, I, you know, I actually see it a slightly different way. Let me lay that out for you, guest or co-host, and let me see if it makes sense. Or the word but. Yeah, I get that, but. Or I used to think it was this, but. So these little tiny moments of tension make the content so much more irresistible and so much better. Anyways, at risk of going too long up front here, I just wanted to point that out because it's a meta lesson here. Phil is somebody who, in a very steady way, was willing to disagree with me, and that's why I wanted to bring him on the show. Um, as a full disclosure, Phil was on my guest list before Wistia, the company he works for, signed on to sponsor marketingshowrunners.com. So even though Wistia doesn't sponsor this show specifically, they are a sponsor elsewhere in our ecosystem. But they had no say in the making of this episode, and they didn't receive this episode for comment before I published it. All right, so thanks to Phil and my discussion and, and sometimes our disagreements, my guess and actually my hope is that you're going to walk away with your brain hurting just a little bit, but I think it'll be that good kind of hurt when you've been challenged to rethink things in a healthy way. So brain soreness, just one of the many benefits of listening to this show. This is Three Clips. Welcome back to another episode of Three Clips, the show from Marketing Showrunners. At MSR, we're doing something a little bit new lately. We've embarked on a weekly journey over email to understand one question for podcasters. What does it take to make your audience's favorite show? Simple question to ask. Turns out really complicated to try and answer, but it should be our one goal, the one question we do answer. So every Friday, I send a new idea with a video and an article to our newsletter. Each idea connects to all the other ideas, even though you don't need to read each, each email. Don't worry if you fall behind. Um, but all of these ideas are building towards a system that we can all use to make someone's favorite show. We're basically building our teaching model in public together with people like you. So to join the journey, visit marketingshowrunners.com and hit the subscribe button on any page. You can also check the show notes for a link to subscribe. A quick thank you also to our episode sponsor today, Casted. They believe content marketing is entering a new phase based on connecting first, not trying to convert people first. And I love that. 
They want to help marketers put podcasts in the center of their marketing strategy, not side projects, not afterthoughts, the driving force. So they built a platform specifically for marketers who make podcasts. You can check that out at casted.us. Now let's dive in to a really big question I had right up front for Phil Nottingham, brand strategist at Wistia. What's wrong with quote unquote brand awareness as this end all be all goal for marketers? So I think the problem with brand awareness um, is a couple of couple of levels deep. So the first one is that it's um, it's kind of insufficient anymore. If we think back to where the idea of brand awareness comes from, um, we're looking and we're thinking about kind of the original world of advertising where we were spending lots of money on billboards and, and TV had just come in. So this is perhaps in the 20s, 30s, up to the, the 50s when TV first became kind of possible. Um, and it's at this point where really the level in which you can differentiate from other products in the shop floor shelf, um, the way in which you might be able to differentiate from others, is people know you and they associate something with you, which is why advertising became such an effective and, and useful form of, of improving revenue ostensibly. So that's kind of where marketing as, as the modern discipline originated. So this makes a ton of sense in that world. But in today's world, where we are bombarded by messages every day, we are you know just thousands and thousands of ads and all these sorts of things online, and ad blindness has increased. So as consumers are able to just ignore things, um, this notion of simply being aware of a brand is insufficient to capture that core um, engagement and differentiation that we think leads to um, purchasing preference. So while while back in the day, brand awareness would correlate very clearly with purchasing intent and preference, that's no longer the case because if we head into a store, often we have um, heard of most of the brands in the uh, you know, on the shelves, if we think in a very straightforward sense of when we're going to a stop shop to purchase something, or maybe when we're on Amazon and we have the option of a few different brands, we're not just necessarily picking the one that we have heard of or that we have seen an ad for because this is going to be um, you know, across the board. Uh, we are going to pick the one that we feel uh, we have more of an, uh, a personal connection to. And that personal connection may be an emotional thing. It may be that we feel that that company represents our values in some way through through the work that they do as a you know corporate social responsibility or just the ideas that they seem to espouse through um, through their marketing communications uh, or it might be probably more likely that we are going to have a, a preferential choice based on the recommendations we've had from others so people we trust whose opinions we think they um, are an authority on that particular subject. And I think that um, their ideas are, are worthwhile listening to, and therefore I'm going to um, follow their advice and purchase from this particular brand. So it, it's that sort of level of specificity in terms of our uh, personal connection to a, a business or a brand that um, drives purchasing intent more than just awareness. So the problem with brand awareness is not that it is not valuable. It is, but it's that it's really the starting point for what we need to uh, reach, which is purchasing preference. And that in these days is more defined by brand affinity, um, which is that that thing I was talking about with um, the connection we feel to an individual business or product or whatever, um, based on our own personal experience, um, our opinions about the company's values and uh, their work, and the particularly, and I think most importantly, the opinions of, of those around us are kind of um, wider influencer networks as individuals. Um, and so where we often spend a whole lot of time and budget trying to improve our brand awareness, I think that is often just missing the, the core um, of what we should be trying to achieve, which is improving our, our brand affinity. The word I use is proxy here. When you think about it, brand awareness is a proxy for what we actually want, which is affinity. And I was always so taken aback when I entered marketing, not having a formal education. I wasn't taught about the different stages of the funnel in a formal fashion. So, you know, I kind of learned marketing by practicing it. And I was always struck by this idea that awareness was something a lot of marketers would talk about in relation to other things like conversion, like purchase, like things that were more transactional. If awareness is like a state of mind or something that's from the consumer perspective, the other terms I heard were always from the business's perspective. And they would all lump together into this like discussion of the funnel or the buyer's journey, and, and uh, correctly or incorrectly. And so the reason I bring that up is 
when you do just think about it from solely the customer's perspective and someone is aware of you, you can very logically see how what you actually want is for that awareness to turn into affinity. And affinity then covers the rest of the quote unquote funnel, the rest of our jobs. And it's so, so it's not enough for someone to turn towards you. They have to walk over, sit down and agree to spend time with you and then take an action because of the time spent. And then if they take enough actions or spend enough time, maybe they go tell someone else about you. So it's so, it's like, so it's necessary, but so insufficient to think about that word awareness, because if you just set aside all the marketing jargon and just think about the people we serve and go at it from their perspective, like them glancing at you, them recognizing that you exist on this planet, it's like a laughable aim as a marketer. And so the way I sum it all up is that to your point, Phil, maybe at one point, maybe this is the Mad Men era where you had a creative director concoct some idea born out of thin air. In some bygone era, marketing was about grabbing attention, but now it's about holding attention. And if your job is to grab attention, you'll cheat and scam and, and, and shout your way into people's lives. Even those, those with integrity, when focused on grabbing attention, go broader, bigger, faster, louder. But when the job is to hold attention, you become far less transactional and you're focused on the relationship because the only thing that holds attention, in other words, the only thing people volunteer significant time with in their lives is a good experience. That's it. So your only quote unquote tactic is to provide a great experience. And so we're living through this sea change. And the reason I wanted to lead with this question is I don't think we're talking enough about it. We talk enough about the reactions that the industry has, like, we now do content marketing. Now it's shows, you know, social media marketing, influencer marketing. These are these are reactions or symptoms. If you really diagnose what's happening, we're living through this era where it is no longer enough to focus on grabbing attention. You have to focus on holding it. Because, oh, by the way, when you hold attention, all the good stuff we talk about, trust and love and actions, all that stuff happens and happens easier. So that's my rant about this like problem with, with awareness. So, so I think it's um, kind of a few... Uh, a few interesting things you, you raised there, which I'd love to comment on. So I, I think the uh, it's important to think about this stuff in the context of the history of marketing. And the history of marketing has, has been largely uh, brand awareness was was how things started out, at least you know about 100 years ago or so. And um, that was the major goal we're going for. And the sort of more conversion-centric marketing that you talk about um, is a more modern phenomenon. That's kind of uh, off the back of the internet where we're able to actually track user activity and funnels and it, it's only kind of in recent years where the i suppose mostly the b2b world but more broadly just sort of conversion centric digital marketing um has realized the limitations of that process that it's then going back to looking at some of the the old means of thinking about marketing in terms of brand awareness and and brand and those kinds of things um and i think it's just the the combination of those worlds uh, where the latter has not necessarily adapted to the landscape of the of the former, so brand awareness is not really uh, understood properly in terms of the digital infrastructure. Um, that we we hit this weird problem where people are kind of trying to do this thing where they're trying to grab attention rather than actually holding it and, and doing meaningful things. As you suggest it's probably worth saying that I think that good brand awareness campaigns, for want of a better kind of definition, have always been about. Um, kind of capturing attention and, and providing value in a, in a meaningful way. You know, you think about all the really great ads, they're about trying to connect you to an idea and an identity, and they're often very emotionally driven and they have those core hooks. It's not just like hard sell, direct response in your face stuff. Like that, the, all the really, really good ads from the last 50 years have all kind of followed that model. So it's not that we have always just sort of tried to hard sell. That's more, I think, the way in which uh, conversion-oriented marketers have kind of interpreted the way in which they should do brand marketing. Um, and now they're sort of understanding it's slightly different, but of course the landscape's changed and that landscape is meaning that we need to invest in different kinds of content, which is why I think uh, shows and longer form stuff, just like we're doing now, um, is kind of emerging as a means of doing brand marketing different from just the the standard kind of big advertising campaigns of, of yesteryear. I always liken this to uh, if, a, if a CMO was building a basketball team, every single person drafted onto that team would be a shoot first scorer uh, because everything has to show revenue directly now or you know, because we've swung the pendulum too far into this, everything is trackable, everything is near term mentality. Everybody on the team would therefore touch the ball and shoot it immediately. But if you have a winning team, you know there's complementary pieces. Everything works off of everything else. So you have a person who 
assists on the shot. You have someone who sets up the person who assists on the shot. So it's everybody playing their role. And in the second big question, we're going to talk more specifically about the revenue problem that we all face as as marketers and showrunners in particular. But for now, like really quick tangent while we're on brand awareness, Phil, um, when we think about show's place, like why Wistia, for example, is focused so squarely on both making shows and making products for marketers who make shows. I think of it as this um, almost like a little dense ball of value that if you threw it into some water, it would expand. Like you throw it into your marketing activities and all of a sudden people who watch or listen to your show, they spend such time with you, they earn such trust with you. In other words, you hold their attention such that any other communication they see from your brand is probably going to have a higher level of efficacy. And it's really hard to find a vanity metric for that. It's so easy to focus on awareness because there's so many vanity metrics. You can just say, look at the views and look at the downloads. But when it comes to this thing that's supposed to be more holistic and sit across your whole funnel, it's more like the classic business school interpretation of brand, which is like this proprietary thing that helps everything work harder. It helps your sales team go outbound and cold call somebody with more efficacy. Oh, wow, you're calling from from Wistia versus this no-name video software company I've never heard of, like Wistia wins in that scenario. So there's all these things that I think we we just don't have, to your point, a way to talk about it or measure it. And so for me, that's why I like landing on this word of affinity. And now our challenge is, how does affinity affect everyone's job? Not just how is affinity and show running related or how does affinity and content work together so my thesis here and i'd love if you could comment on how you're thinking about this is this is not a groundbreaking thesis is when we focus on brand affinity instead of brand awareness it actually improves everything we're trying to do but we just kind of lack the language or maybe the nuance to 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 see that on a chart somewhere Yes, I, th- I think that's largely true. I mean, th- I think the idea of brand affinity is also kind of an old one, but is just coming into a new form of relevance. So the way in which companies have historically sort of tried to optimize a brand affinity is usually through things like vouchers and discount codes and uh, you know, sorting out the existing customers and trying to get them to kind of rebuy stuff and all that kind of thing. So that there's, a, there's an established kind of practice around brand affinity, but this very idea of making that a marketing goal rather than a you know product adoption goal or a, a sales goal i suppose is a um is a new i think an interesting idea that that's coming about because um awareness is sort of not enough and we have this new landscape where we can actually do things to to engage people with marketing that is non-advertorial um specifically through yeah as we're kind of talking about longer form content so i think that's why we end up with this sort of brand affinity um and i think it's absolutely true just as it always has been if you if you get good brand affinity that makes everything else easier and it will typically uh improve the likelihood that people are going to become a lead or purchase of course which is the the main focus um or uh yeah, you know, everything else that you kind of mentioned with regards to when the sales team reach out, they are much more likely to be interested. Um, and this is, as you say, always been the goal of brand. So I think that's absolutely true. Um, but I think why this is becoming more important is that the old tactics that people thought meant you didn't need to spend a huge amount of money on brand. So, you know, lead nurturing, conversion, um, just sort of broader, everything we might consider under kind of inbound content marketing, what kind of that stuff where you would think in terms of a very lead centric view of the world where you try and acquire people, you'd get them into a funnel, you'd drip them down to the next stage, and then you'd eventually convert them through all these touch points. Um, that model's broken. The the sort of changes to tracking and user behavior means that this this model doesn't work. So that's why we're kind of going back to this model where we're we're trying to influence more than just the specific customer in their journey and actually influence the kind of wider landscape around them. So the people who will recommend things to them, the the way in which they're going to um, perceive your brand when they just see it up against others in third-party aggregators or whatever. So the landscape change means is this is more important. Um, and I think it also means that the brand is coming back as the most important goal that you can have as a marketer um, because the more concentric, uh, more conversion-centric and focused um, tactics are no longer working the way they they were five ten years ago. I do think there was a little bit of a, of a, a telling slip there where you said concentric, and I thought about um, you did a whiteboard Friday 
episode for Moz where you talked about coming up with ideas for a marketer's mm. show and you talked about the big the big first starting point is you know we do think about funnels and we think about adding more people to the top and that's how you grow and you very quickly drew these concentric circles talking about you know the way we're growing now the way you focus on affinity is you start with a small circle i call those the, the true mm-hmm. believers you know the, the people that believe what you believe they love what you're doing they're super passionate and therefore vocal you could look at it any which way, like the law of, of diffusion of innovation, you talk about the early adopters, whatever, but you talk about this narrow audience and they will help you influence and attract this larger circle, which then gets you the larger circle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I always found that the toughest pill to swallow for the typical marketer or marketing organization is starting with the narrow, starting with the depth, looking for resonance, not reach right away. Because when you're focused on awareness, you can kind of hide a little bit. You're like, look, look, we got a million people. Like, I don't know what you want me to do as a marketer. What, what else you want me to do? Like, it's, but mm-hmm. however, far better, whether you think conversion percentages or you just think it's the right thing to do, far better to serve a small group of the right audience more deeply. And over time, now that you've established value, grow the thing that's valuable. Um, and so I, when I hear you talk about affinity or I hear you put up those little concentric circles and starting narrow and deep, I think about how that changes a marketer's behavior in their content. Like instead of trying to take the same basic piece, let's say it's an episode of a podcast and just slap it in more places. Can you focus on if you have only two more hours to spend with this material? Could you focus on going deeper with the audience that's already listening? Could you build an email list exclusive to the show? Could you do some planning internally with your team. Okay, instead of writing six blog posts about this episode to make it fly, how do we go deeper with the 150 people that listened? Well, we need some inside jokes or we need some recurring segments or we need a way to shout out the people that are commenting publicly about our episodes. Like, okay, instead of doing more content creation, why don't we focus on some planning to build community? Like I'm thinking about how the shift from awareness to affinity actually impacts the day-to-day minutia of a marketer. And I think you can kind of sum that up with at least some more of your time, if not all, should be focused on going deeper with fans instead of just broader to collect more fans. Because it's not about a passive audience. It's about really deep community around what you have to say. Yes, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. I think it's absolutely right. And for me, the biggest shift in strategy and behavior that that this new world is um, forming is exactly that, that instead of going for a wide audience that we then um, lose some of and narrow down as we get towards purchasing, we're actually starting with a very, very narrow audience and then going wider as we grow and being more specific with who we go after. Um, And this, I think, is such a radical shift that it's going to require marketers completely reassessing pretty much everything they think about measurement and strategy um, in such a way that most will fail and it will be very uncomfortable for, for the vast majority. <laughs> but I think this is the this is the natural shift that we're, we're moving towards. Um, and uh, and this is how we're going to have to get on board. We have to think about being very, very specific with who we speak to, making the best things on the internet for a very small number of people. And we will soon find that this is the thing that really um, provides long-term value and gets more and more people actually becoming advocates, becoming customers and, and building that long-term um, brand affinity that is going to drive drive ultimate value and revenue. Um, the problem is, is as you say, it's very hard for marketers to get their head around this because we've, we've for the last 150 years or whatever it is, been spending time just thinking about broad, 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 go broad, narrow it down from there, you know, just get as many people to look at it as possible. The, the number of views, the number of hits, the number of traffic, number of conversions, that's all the stuff that matters. And uh, it isn't anymore. And that's a very, very difficult thing for us to kind of appreciate and get our heads around. I, I listened to an episode of, so the marketer Mitch, Mitch Joel, who's an author and a speaker and um, recently sold an agency. And so now he's kind of doing his own thing. So Mitch and I talked about his podcast's 700th episode which is wild. Uh, he's one of the early movers in this space. Uh, his show is called Six Pixels of Separation. And we were deconstructing his show together. And the episode was about, um, or the episode interviewed rather, Seth Godin. So kind of a special episode with a special thinker. And, and Mitch made it an event, as he should have, to celebrate number 700. And one of the things that he challenged Seth Godin on, and he had this wonderful response, was Seth was claiming that he didn't have to go broad and market or advertise his projects. And Mitch was like, yeah, cause you're Seth effing Godin. And, but the rest of us out here don't have 
hundreds of thousands of people following us on every channel and and you know not fake followers either but people who like really love what we do like you can get away with that seth but the rest of us when we publish an episode of a show we have to find five or six ways throughout the week to tell people that we published it to try and you know get people to find it and listen to it and come back to it and all that and he's like so seth seth very thoughtfully said that you know, if, if we, if the idea is that we have to hype and hustle our way to the point where we have an audience where we no longer need to hype and hustle, why not start with the few people with whom you don't have to hype and hustle and enable them to go get you the other people. And again, Mitch pushed back and he's like, yeah, that's easy for Seth Godin to say. And Seth said, well, how do you think I became Seth Godin? And I was like, shit, that was a mic drop moment. It's like, there's a long-term mentality here about building a foundation that sticks with you. And so many of us have such pressures to deliver something we can show others right now. And it's an excuse and it's a way for us to hide and it's a way for us to get ourselves off the hook. I get it. Um, but the fact remains is theoretically, a lot of this makes sense, but when you go to implement it, it can be really difficult. Mm. So I don't want to oversimplify this, Phil, but are there are there things that you would encourage people to do that let's say they are making let's just keep it simple let's say it's a podcast or a video series let's just stay in the medium that we explore here on this show are there things that people can do right now to start advocating internally or start shifting the dialogue internally i'm not saying change how they market i'm just saying they're bought in in the philo- the philosophy of all this whether they're nodding viscerally to seth godin saying like he became Seth Godin by focusing on affinity or they're huge fans of you, Phil or Wistia broadly, they get the affinity thing theoretically. Now they got to go talk to people internally. How do you start brokering that conversation or changing the mentality before we even touch the work? Yeah. Great question. Um, so I, you know, I'm a big believer in the, the old adage that you get what you measure. And I think you should start by before you change any of the strategy, any of the, the content that you're doing, just change the way you measure stuff or just start adding a couple of extra metrics to the general reports and start indicating that this is the most important thing. And the, the number one is basically, as we've talked about time spent. So most of you are probably, if you're measuring things like, you know, blogs or uh, podcasts even, or um, videos or whatever, you're probably kind of measuring mostly on some form of um, user-based like views, hits, um, traffic, whatever it might be, page views. Um, okay, that's fine. Keep keep that on board. But also just measure like how much time people are actually spending overall with each different medium. Um, so like one of the major things that, uh, that kind of made us shift strategy at Wistia was when we produced this... Um, show 110-100, and we kind of just did that show because we thought it was a good idea and we wanted to do it. But we launched it, and we had this big goal set on number of uh, engaged views. So it was like number of people who will watch 25% of the content, um, we would like to hit 100,000. And we didn't hit 100,000. We only hit like, I think it was 30,000 or something. So we were all really disappointed. But it felt wrong to be disappointed because we knew from qualitative reasons that actually this had had a massive impact on the business. People were talking to us. All of our you know other metrics were up. And the thing that really swung it to, to make sense of what was going on was when we, we measured the amount of time people were spending with that content versus all the other blog posts that we'd published over the last few years. And more people were spending time with four videos than the rest of the blogs. And that made you kind of go, hold on a minute, there's, there's something about this. So just start measuring the amount of time people are spending. And I should qualify, if you're using like social media and stuff like that, that does mean cleaning the data you get from YouTube and Facebook because the numbers that they give you on the amount of time people are actually spending with your content is, is not accurate. So you need to kind of get rid of all of the, the very short views and only count those that are lasting more than a minute or something um, because, you know, uh, 50,000 10-second views is of no value to you in terms of building affinity. <laughs> what you really want to see is like how much time are people who are choosing to invest time watching your content, how much time are they actually spending overall, um, and use that as one of your kind of monthly metrics. And from here, you'll then be able to kind of correlate and show that um, how that's impacting things like brand search. Um, and from there, you can probably make a much easier and stronger case to invest in 
in longer form creative content specifically to build brand affinity um, because you've got the metrics in place to show why that's important and and how your current content is performing. So begin to add those metrics, begin to have that conversation. I, I think the best ideas, especially in this marketing stuff we do because we're not building rockets to get to Mars, a lot of this stuff is about the basics of humans. And I think the best ideas in marketing are like head slap, of course, moments. And I think that was an example of that, Phil, where we don't have to reverse course and change everything and rip it all down. Just start to weave in a few different things you're measuring that relate to this idea of affinity and over time have the conversation continually and you'll start to win hearts and minds. So precisely. I love that. I think this is a perfect dovetail into our second big question today, which we're both going to try to make sense of. I think we have complementary ideas, some some conflicting ideas, but I think largely we're we're thinking the same direction. We have different ways of trying to get here. Here's the second question. As marketers, we don't often like to tie our shows or our content to real revenue numbers. So we're talking about brand. A lot of times if we're building a brand, we don't like to tie it to a real revenue number. And yet the desire for those around us, be them peers or bosses, the desire they have to see how we're impacting revenue will not go away. So how do we actually navigate the conversation given that reality? So I'm, I'm sure. happy to take a stab at that if you want. I have some ideas I wrote about uh, recently, but if you want to take a stab for this, is, this one's really hairy. <laughs> um, why don't you start and I'll, um, I'll feed in afterwards. Okay, okay. So I think along your lines of trying to shift from, you know, measuring one way to weaving in a little bit more data on the affinity thing, you know, again, not just making a wholesale shift from one day to the next. Let's start there. I think... There is a way to measure revenue. We have to make sure that, uh, first of all, when we say the word revenue, people don't think direct marketing measurement because there are some things that are direct marketing. An ad on Facebook advertising a course is direct marketing. But there are other things that are not direct marketing and you can't therefore measure them like direct marketing. So I think the first thing is we have to be able to say revenue and know what we mean. What we mean here is the lifetime revenue, the value over time of the people who watch or listen or subscribe relative to the people who do not. I think that's the punchline. You start with the hypothesis. Subscribers to our show are more valuable to our brand than the average subscriber to other content or to non-subscribers. But subscribers to our show are more valuable. That's the, that's the hypothesis. And then you use measurement and revenue is a part of that to see, is, is your hypothesis true? And by the way, if it ends up not being true, you're attracting the wrong audience, even if it's a big audience, right? We should know this, not just to have internal conversations, but so we can adjust the work and improve it. So subscribers to our show are more valuable than the average subscriber. Let's keep it easy, because you probably have data on blog subscribers, newsletter subscribers, webinar attendees, et cetera, leads in the database. Um, when we say that, I think that equips us to now try and shift some people who listen or watch to an email list just for the show or survey and tag people already in our database as fans of the show or not. But if you start with this idea of segmenting your emails for who does and does not like the show or consume it, then over time you can start to measure their value and show very clearly, hey, boss, hey, peers, Look, this show is having impact. I know it's not as big as some of the other things we do, but they're more valuable. Look at this. And we can get into the formula and all this stuff, but that's the punchline. How do you show that someone who is a fan of your show is more valuable to your brand than the average person who interacts with you? Because if your thinking is a show increases affinity and a show increases time spent, those again are proxy words for that makes the person who is on the receiving end more valuable to us. Um, so I'll say it one more time. Subscribers to the show are more valuable to the brand than other cohorts. And what you have to do to measure that, you have to stop measuring totals and you have to start measuring value. And I think the best way to measure value is you look at their interaction with your brand over time. And the easiest way to do that is you measure emails. So I'll shut up. That's my theory. I have formulas for this. I have a giant blog post that I'll put in the show notes to, for how to do this. But I'd love your comments disagreements, thoughts on that, Phil? Sure. So, so I think I partially agree with you and partially disagree. So the, the area in which I agree is I think it's absolutely right to start thinking about your show as a, as a kind of CRM process. So you're, you're capturing subscribers as emails and then you're, you're tracking their level of kind of fandom 
based on how engaged they are. So, you know, how much they are consuming your content, how much they're, how regularly they're coming back, how much time they're spending, and be able to kind of segment your subscribers and your show viewers based on that engagement. So, you might have like, you know, uh, initial viewers, fans, super fans, and like, you know, ultimate hardcore level fans, whatever you want to call it. So, you have these kind of different gradient scale in which you can measure that. Um, that level of fandom where I think you don't want the route I think you don't want to take is then trying to tie that to revenue and the reason is is that it's not necessarily true that the best fans correlate with increased revenue so even at Wistia we saw this you can the the people who are the most avid show subscribers and um, show viewers are not bringing in more revenue necessarily at least trackable revenue than those who are directly converting and partially this is down to the fact that really the value you're getting from people who watch your shows the value you get from brand affinity is not just the likelihood of subscribing or the likelihood of purchase sorry it's actually the advocacy and that's really what you should be optimizing for is the advocacy so the way in which somebody who's come and watched a show at wistia and really you know consumed all of our stuff they are more likely to recommend wistia to their to their friends to their um, co-workers and all the other people they speak to. And that's the value that is increasing the, the brand awareness and the overall brand affinity and the the complete intent and purchasing preference that people have for Wistia, ah, for example. So that, that that value is not easy trackable in terms of revenue. And if we'd have used that model at Wistia, um, it would have made our shows look not very valuable, even though on other levels, like the amount of people searching Wistia, purchasing rate, all that kind of stuff were up. So I think there is an issue with, with tracking value in that way there's also so um a couple other things is i think that uh, if we think about the way brand marketing was historically measured it wasn't necessarily about tying things to revenue um brand marketing's mostly been about um about yeah like number of people coming into the store or it's about sort of that brand's um survey responses and how people say they feel about stuff so there's a long history of brands being quite comfortable with spending lots of money without directly seeing revenue as long as through some cohort analysis so over time they can then show how different campaigns have probably impacted purchasing over a over an extended period right. um, and i think that model is likely to continue in some form in this new brand affinity world so i don't think the the sort of more digital marketing conversion centric model of measurement is the way that's going to go um and the other reason why I think it's a problem if it does is that if you start to measure, even if it's in a kind of quite extrapolated way, if you start to try and measure the um, the value of a show in terms of revenue, it's very much like you start, to your basketball analogy, you start to measure all your players in terms of their, even if it's like the assist towards a goal or the assist towards a basket. Um, and even then that becomes slightly problematic because I'll, I'll switch to a soccer analogy because I'm English and I don't know much about basketball. <laughs> but in a soccer analogy, even like a defender is a great player. You need, you know, three or four of them on the pitch, but you'd never measure them in terms of assisted goals, even though that's kind of the ultimate goal of what you're trying to achieve through the, the game. You're always going to measure a defender based on the amount of tackles, the blocks, the, um, you know, the amount of uh, second balls they can get and how they can pass that up to the to the, to the next player. So it just becomes a slightly like you have to just think more strategically about it. And so I think we need to we need to somehow find a way that um, people are able to measure shows uh, in terms of the value that their subscribers are having in terms of the amount they consume and the amount they recommend. The recommendation problem is difficult because increasingly it's private with GDPR, with um, Slack, with WhatsApp, with all these platforms that we can't see, we can't look in. We actually don't know how many people are talking to us. So we have to have to find um, some better proxies for that. A lot of people use social measurement, like social listening tools, brand mentions, social amplification. I think there's some value in tracking that, but again, it's, it's not a perfect metric and it's, it can correlate the wrong way. So I think you just need to get a spectrum of metrics and be able to kind of see what's going on. But the ultimate thing that you want to encourage is consumption. And if you see that consumption number going up and with some cohort analysis, it, it um, tracks with increased purchasing and increased conversion rates and all that kind of thing, then you're probably doing something good. Got it. Um, okay, the, so let me let me just yeah, jump in sure. here. Though. Go on, go ahead. Because I yeah. think so. There's a risk of the listener's brain hurting, and I hope it's in the good way by the end of the episode. But I think right now it could be in a slightly panicked way. So sure. wanna, I think here here's how I, I want to come at the rest of our uh, revenue question here. Um, there are layers to this, and I think we have we agree to a point, like you said, and then I think let's go through the layers one by one because I think it's sort of like we agree on a, a few, and then we get a little bit deeper, and that's where we start to have differing opinions. But I was actually taking notes when you were talking. I actually think 
we don't necessarily disagree when you go deeper. We just are looking at two different things, both of which we might need to talk about. So let me go, go like logically one by one and we can kind of break them down in short form because I think I want people to be like A, on the same page and also B, the brain hurt by the end should be a good one and, a, and not a stressful one. So, uh, oh, and by the way, while we're on the sports thing really briefly, I was I loved where you took that. I don't really understand soccer or football as everybody <laughs> should call it because god knows american football you don't really use your feet so uh but anyways the there are some stats i can point to in like baseball uh wins above replacement or war in basketball per player efficiency rating where what it is is a roll-up of your total contribution not just your points mm-hmm. or assists uh but it also takes into account defense etc and i think mm-hmm. in marketing we lack that we don't have like Let's take into account all the parts and pieces and assign a value to this thing. Um, I actually think there are ways to do this, but it's that's a whole different episode of this show. So we won't have to talk about that. But I, I agree with your assessment. There are some stats. You can't just be like, how many points did they influence or score? Um, but there are other stats you can concoct that take into the nuance of this. So that's what we're talking about is how do you take into account the nuance? So let's go yeah. layers deep where we get a little murkier. I think the easiest layer, the superficial layer, which is still important because it's the starting point to this is it sounds like you and I both agree that we should make a mental shift that rather than measure pure totals of things, we should also measure or at least focus on primarily measuring the value of things. So like I mentioned lifetime revenue, you mentioned time spent or influence or advocacy. Like when we talk about these things, we're trying to look at the individual is more valuable, not the empty vanity of there are more individuals. Yes, yes, I think um, that's largely true. So you, you want okay. to be able to kind of bucket and track and be very specific about how much somebody has contributed and engaged. And I think, as you just indicated, there's lots of ways we could think to do that with lots of compound metrics um, that kind of roll up a bunch of things, and that'd be great. Uh and I think that we shouldn't just start treating all users as essentially the same, um, right, irrespective right. of how they behave, which we are in, in danger of doing with all, all of our aggregate metrics. Completely. So, okay. So, so you use the word aggregate. I'm using the word totals, but the same idea. It's like first yep. step here, let's shift our mentality as marketers to our job isn't to create more totals. Our job is to create more value. So we can't just measure pure totals, even if those prove directionally useful or politically useful, we need to measure the value of our audience. So we're on the, I think we're in a total agreement there. Absolutely. Okay. The next step down is how do you, so how do you start measuring the value of a show's audience? And I think there are like two benefits to this um, or two, I guess you could call them metrics. Let's call them byproducts. Like the two byproducts of really great brand affinity or a really great show is number one, theoretically the lifetime value of show fans that do purchase should be higher because ostensibly like they're spending so much time with you. They love you so much. They're putting their time and then their reputation when they refer others to you on the line. So theoretically customers that have interacted with the show should have a higher lifetime value. That's, that's part of my like thesis here. We'll talk about the measurement part cause it's hairier, but mm-hmm. the lifetime value of these people to the brand overall. Actually, we could even remove purchase. Just like the lifetime value of this audience should be greater. Let's say your podcast audience only has a thousand listeners, your blog audience has 2,000 views a post. The thousand listeners to your podcast should be higher lifetime value than the 2,000 views per post, ostensibly. Because now you factor in why? Because go back up one level, the value the depth, the time spent, et cetera. So do we agree on that, that the lifetime value of this audience should ostensibly be greater than other cohorts? I don't think we do. I think I disagree on that. And it's not that I think that there aren't cases where that might be the case. And it may, I think it's too early to know whether or not for most cases that would be the case. But I can certainly think of many instances and examples where that will not be the case but that the um, the the fact that someone is an avid an influencer and an avid sort of watcher of the show, they're still providing great value. So one example I'm just thinking off the top of my head. So I really like um, 
music and I'm really into sort of like weird nerdy shows about music I don't have a huge amount of disposable income to spend on um, weird musical equipment I wish I did but I know that my uncle for example does and I will often give him advice on things to buy so he is probably buying his lifetime value despite not being a show watcher from that particular company is far far more than I will be just because I'm but I'm a regular subscriber so there's a kind of level of um extrapolation there that I can see applies in some instances. So I'm not sure that it's always going to mean that um, that a huge amount of show subscription and, and consumption correlates with higher lifetime value. It may do for some, and I think it's certainly worth keeping an eye on that as a metric, but I wouldn't treat that as a KPI necessarily. Let's talk about the what, what a high lifetime value, or we can remove that for now, a high, highly engaged audience gets you in part is, I think, lower cost of customer acquisition. Because if you have a passionate audience, you have people that there is an affinity there. To your point, Phil, they'll they'll go tell others about your company and your product. They'll evangelize you publicly. And so ostensibly, that is bringing you people for free. Some people that just totally convert to sale for free. And other people that, you know, they get into your halo and it's cheaper because it wasn't through a paid ad. They just arrived without you knowing they existed. And now they're a blog subscriber and the rest of your marketing takes over as one example. So the other benefit... So we disagree on the LTV thing. The other benefit is your costs of customer acquisition should actually be lessened in some ways because you have this great show and, and therefore this passionate audience. Yeah, so so cost per um, customer acquisition. So in, in theory, in the broadest spectrum of the, the metric, I agree with you that that's how it should apply. The challenge becomes actually how you measure that in a meaningful way because of the nature of um, just you know purchasing funnels and all that kind of thing. Anytime you sort of treat anything that's not direct response and try to measure it in terms of cost per acquisition, it gets real muddy. And it gets muddy because you just can't track users through that particular flow. And that metric always ends up looking really good when it's like PPC or something that is far more directly attributable. What you what you can find is that you, if you try to measure your show in terms of cost per acquisition, it just becomes um, a, a bit tricky to do. So one, because you can, you can do it on a global scale, but then... Yeah, there's a huge number of other things that can actually influence that particular metric. And if you just try and do it in terms of like show viewers and how much they averagely convert, again, you're probably not um, getting the the true value because you're not you're probably not being able to cookie and track everyone the same way. What if somebody watches a show and then they click on a PPC ad? That's going to show the cost per acquisition is like better on PPC and that kind of thing. So it just becomes very difficult to actually meaningfully track that in the modern world. So I, I think in principle, there's something there, but I'm not entirely sure how it applies in a practical sense. When you, um, so I had a conversation with a CMO of a tech company about how he, he's new to the role. And so he's kind of doing a survey of like, where are all, all the um, dollars going for the marketing team and all the time being spent on my team. And so he's looking at all these channels, all these sources of customers, and he has events and the blog and a dedicated webinar series, you know, with a gate in front of it. He's got all these different sources and he's looking at the team and, and costs associated with each of these sources the total number of people that come into their database through each source and the percent of those people that convert into paying customers. And then on the back end, he's looking at then the lifetime value of those customers. So now he's on that spreadsheet putting the potential of a podcast. So he's like, right now, if we do a show and it could be video, it could be audio. So podcast or video series, he's like, I have to justify this to my CEO as the CMO because everyone's got a boss to some degree. Mm -hmm. I have to show them that, look, like we're going to take some of this budget away from over here and we're going to send it over here. And so what the CEO is going to ask for is, all right, just show me that based on what you're spending on the show, that there are maybe the most number of people don't come through that. So the event series will look a little bit better than the podcast, but the percentage of people who convert from the podcast to sale is greater. And he's like, well, how would you handle that, Jay? And I was like, well, I mean, the first thing is you, you have no idea. So you, you have to take some of the people listening on Apple and Spotify at all and move them to an email list. Because if you do that, now you can track them. Now you know who they are. And you can say they're a proxy for the total subscription. So of the 10,000 people we list that listen to the show, 750 came over to email. Of the 750, we now know they converted at this percent. And that took them this long. And now over time, we can track their value to the business and the revenue they've paid us, et cetera. So like when I feel like what I'm struggling with Phil is when that is your reality like you have somebody who's trying to get nuanced 
they themselves maybe lack a few variables too. Mm. And now here comes the marketer asked from their boss who might not be that blunt, who might not, who might be very gracious and say, I want what you want marketer. I want a great show, but I got to justify it to my CEO. And I, you know, this is kind of me laying my cards on the table here. I personally haven't been able to figure out the right answer to that individual in our audience. So I'm kind of at a loss still. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. I, I have a few contradictory views on this, so I, I'm still kind of ironing this one out in my head, I think. So firstly is that I, I do think that if you are required as a business to justify any marketing investment in terms of revenue, you are in a bad spot. And and that is not a good strategy. And there's a lot of CMOs and a lot of CEOs that treat marketing like this, um, particularly new tech companies that have sprouted up over the last you know, 10, 15 years. That's very common because they're used to performance marketing as the standard way of doing marketing, which is kind of to my point why I think shows more broadly is a brand marketing play, not a performance marketing play. And it needs to be best understood as a brand marketing play, because if it becomes a a performance acquisition marketing play, the quality of the show deteriorates rapidly. (laughs) It will just start to become an ad before long. This is just where you you get what you measure kind of thing. Having said that, my, my view, I do generally agree that if you are in a position where you just need to like, you are bought in on the idea of doing brand marketing, but you need to get some investment from your boss. You just need to get buy-in. Then, you know, basically getting people into CRM, finding a way to show that these are valuable customers, showing that they have a higher likelihood of purchase, showing that they have all that kind of stuff is definitely a good way to go to kind of justify the investment. That said, it may be a good way to justify the investment, but it may also be a very bad way to justify the investment because you may find that in doing so, the metrics don't right. come out the way you want them to. And certainly a lot of the companies that I've seen in Wistia, we can think about this in theory, but actually it doesn't always pan out that way in practice. So if you set that as a KPI before you've even started and then say that we are doing this and we are going to prove that um, people who come through the podcast are like going to be valuable leads, more valuable than... Um, people who've come through other lead capture forms or whatever, I think that does set a dangerous precedent because then if it doesn't pan out the way you hope, you've kind of undermined your case for um, investing in in this kind of you know, more creative content marketing in the future. So uh, I think it's worth measuring and worth like tracking, but but often it's easier to do it retrospectively to try and build that business case after you've done it. Um, if you're trying to do it in advance, I think it's very difficult. And I would say that if you are if you are, if it's demanded that you can guarantee success and you can guarantee more revenue through this type of creative content marketing investment, um, I think that's a very difficult position to be in because you never can. Um, this is not a, a simple kind of uh, purchasing equation where you can just invest more money and more will come out. It's uh, it's not a, an asset and it's not a commodity. It's a, a creative investment that uh, is inherently risky and uh, is much much harder to measure. And so my promise to people listening is is this, like we are still early in this and therefore, you know, marketing showrunners as a business started when I, I kept saying we're a year too soon, which is exactly where I want to be. I think we're like nine months too soon now and <laughs> which is great. And I think so we'll continue to work on this. I'll put in the show notes a link to this this post that I wrote, a really lengthy post about revenue per, per subscriber and the mentality shift to measure values, not totals. Um, you obviously have Phil's take in this episode. I think the more cracks we take at this, the closer we'll get. But in the meantime, you know, I think part of it is FOMO. Part of it is we will continue to see more and more brands launching shows, more and more brands shift to brand affinity marketing, not awareness-based marketing. And that will win over some of those slight laggards, right? The people that are a little bit behind that want to see others prove it before they adopt it. So we're still in the mode of early adopters and innovators taking on this mantle of affinity and executing through shows. And they have some decent metrics. And over time, you know, the momentum that they show plus those decent metrics, maybe we'll win over the next halo. So my promise is we'll keep working on this. I know Phil's gonna. And in the meantime, if you're listening, keep keep plugging away. Keep telling us what you're doing to measure and to get value out of your shows and show that value to other people. Um, and we'll write about it because I don't think anyone has an answer here. No, that sounds great. The, the only other quick thing I want to add on that one is um, I, I'm seeing two kinds of major uh, problems or like means of coming at this that the companies need to shift the first one is like companies usually consumer uh, b2c consumer brands who've uh, used to doing a lot of brand marketing and they are coming at this thinking i don't like they're measuring shows just based on impressions and views and all that kind of stuff and they really don't understand why they need to do something 
different. So they're used to doing very advertorial social media kind of stuff. And thinking about doing a different kind of marketing is very, very difficult and confusing for them in terms of different kinds of content. The other side is the more kind of conversion centric performance marketing people who are usually from younger companies who've really grown up in the kind of digital era. And those companies really struggle with the, the measurement. So they really struggle with trying to think about measuring this kind of investment differently, even though they're very comfortable with the kind of different kinds of activity. So I'm trying to sort of make the shift for both these uh, groups and try to make sure that we can find a way to, to get them both on board. But it's certainly a challenge. Uh, it is. It is. And, I, and that's that's we are an early adopter organization and may always be. And I think that's that's totally fine. But um, yeah, we'll keep plugging away at this stuff. Let's move to our, our final big question. This one's going to be really short because the, the second one was so important, but also so difficult to try and land on a pithy answer. <laughs> when you survey the landscape as you have and, and as I do of lots of marketers making shows today, what do you think is the single biggest missing thing in their shows, in their process, and in the resulting show? Yeah, great question. So uh, for me, it's like a proper creative strategy. And this is all the kind of thing that um, if you've ever worked in an ad agency or kind of read all the stuff put out by Ogilvy and all these you know companies that have really been at the forefront of great creative advertising for the last um, 50 years, the, this is what we're talking about. So having an idea of the like, the audience, the the cultural tension that you're trying to speak to and how you're kind of resolving that. So having a real idea of who you're speaking to and what it is that their challenges are and how you can contribute to that in a meaningful way. And that, I think the biggest, com- the problem that I see with companies right now with shows is they are just making the shows for their target customers and recognizing that your show needs to be for a more specific and different audience than your target customer is something that I think many brands really really struggle with um, because they've never kind of gone down and done a hard, proper creative brand strategy. So um, working out this subcultural community or or cultural group that you can speak to and understanding what problems and tensions they have and really being able to kind of speak to those in a meaningful way is, is the way in which you're going to come up with a really, really good show idea. The way in which you come up with a slightly lackluster show idea um, is where you just think, here's our target customers. We're going to talk to them about something that we want to talk to them about. <laughs> um, and not doing that work up front, not doing the research, the real hard thinking consideration to work out what unique perspective you have that you're bringing to the table um, is the thing that will will differentiate between a great show and a bad show. It's not about production quality. It's not about the the kind of you know, flashiness of the whole thing. It's all about that good, proper creative strategy. You get that right, everything flows from there. Oh, I love that. It's also complimentary to the answer I was going to give. So I'll, I'll give that in a second. My one comment on your answer I'd like to redefine people's expectations of where production quality comes from, or maybe better said is production value. The planning, as you're pointing out, if you have a great plan and something real to say, if you say something that matters to your audience and you know who that audience is, and therefore you equip yourself to say something that matters, Mm -hmm. that is production value. Like having a plan, having a strategy, there's tons more value in that than just the glossiness of the final product. Like, I don't know how many brand video shows I've watched lately. It's in the dozens. So many of them. I would probably say eight out of 10 are beautifully produced nothing burgers. <laughs> they just like, they look so great and they say nothing. Exactly. And so like having something powerful to say. And so my compliment to your answer, Phil, which I thought was a great one, is the power of a premise. A show premise is that concept that sits over the whole show. It guides the journey. You can position it as a journey of understanding. It doesn't have to be a serialized story, but like we're going deep into this topic because you care about it too. And for the new viewer or the new listener, it helps them self-select into it. It's like how you earn the trust that you need as a brand to have someone try the content. And then the returning fan it's positioned as a journey. It's like, how do we deepen the trust over time, get that time spent, earn love, consistently show up, and essentially do what a show promises to do, which is to drive towards resonance, that passionate audience that spurs word of mouth. And so the power of a premise is both for self-selection of new audience and for the returning and deepening of the relationship with existing audience. Absolutely. And I would just add, I think one way of knowing whether or not you've, you've almost got there is somebody should be able to look at your show and know that it's not for them. <laughs> You have to, there, there should be an audience that go, no, like you have to, you have to be able to stand up, take a stand and be clear who you're for and who you're not for. And that means that people should know immediately whether or not they're going to be, they're going to care and be interested. And that means alienating a few people and you should be really comfortable doing that.
That's Phil Nottingham, brand strategist at Wistia. You can find all of Wistia's original shows at wistia.com slash series, or check the show notes for links to say hi to Phil. Thank you to Casted, our sponsor today. Be sure to check out the world's first podcasting platform built specifically for brand marketers at casted.us. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll join our weekly journey over email to build a system that we can all use to make someone's favorite podcast. Visit marketingshowrunners.com and click the subscribe button or check your show notes for a link. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I believe great marketing is not about who arrives. It's about who stays. So thanks for staying with me, and I'll talk to you on the next episode of Three Clips. See ya. This week's recommended read on the Marketing Showrunners blog is a short read from staff writer Tally Gabriel. She's currently writing a series called Podcast Format Possibilities. The whole goal of the series is to help marketers break from the conventional wisdom that all we can really do is do a guest interview style show because we can't be NPR. We can't be Gimlet Media. We can't do all these highly produced shows. The thing is, there are so many formats that we can try to be more creative and more resonant with our audiences. So this article happens to be the scripted monologue. Huh. Should you do one? What does it take to do one? And who is doing those well? The scripted monologue. It's part of an ongoing series she's exploring to help us all rethink our formats. You can check it out using the link at the very end of your show notes or search the blog at marketingshowrunners.com.